All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and it is Monday, June 7th, 2021. So it means we are standing in the confessional corner, and we are looking again in Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession. We're going to look at some of the replies to the adversary's arguments from Article 4 in the Confutation as we begin in paragraph 62 this week. Now, when the grounds of this case have been understood, the distinction between the law and the promises, or the gospel, it will be easy to resolve the adversary's objections, for they quote passages about the law and works and leave out passages about the promises. But a final reply can be made to all opinions about the law, namely, that the law cannot be kept without Christ, and that if civil works are done without Christ, they do not please God. Therefore, when works are commended, it is necessary to add that faith is required. They are commended because of faith. They are the fruit and testimonies of faith. Ambiguous and dangerous cases produce many and various solutions. For the judgment of the ancient poet is true. An unjust cause, being in itself sick, requires skillfully applied remedies. In just and sure cases, one or two explanations derived from the sources correct all things that seem to offend. This happens also in our case here. For the rule I have just quoted explains all the passages that are quoted about the law and works. We acknowledge that the scripture teaches the law in some places and the gospel in others. For example, the free promise of forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. But our adversaries absolutely abolish the free promise when they deny that faith justifies and when they teach that they receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation because of love and our works. If forgiveness of sins depends on our works, it is completely uncertain. The promise will be abolished. Therefore, we tell godly minds to consider the promises, and we teach about free forgiveness of sins and reconciliation, which happens through faith in Christ. Afterward, we add also the teaching of the law. It is necessary to distinguish these things aright, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15. We must see what Scripture says about the law and what it says about the promises. For it praises works in such a way that it does not remove the free promise. Here we have Melanchthon starting his defense against the adversaries, and even waxing a little poetic as he quotes Euripides from Phoenicia. And this was a play that Melanchthon lectured on often. As we have to remember, Melanchthon is not a pastor. Melanchthon is not trained as a priest. He is trained as a teacher of rhetoric and literature. So therefore, he uses this Greek play very often in his lectures. So as he talks about this, it is an unjust cause. Being unjust, that is, it's sickness. It's not properly right, requires skillfully applied remedies. And that is what Melanchthon is proposing here. Now, as I said, Melanchthon is a layman, but he is a very learned layman. He understands his Bible. He understands the church fathers. That was a prominent part of the university training in the 16th century. So he says this one statement counts against every one of the arguments that the adversaries have given. But he will go on in these next few paragraphs to talk about some of them in particular. But here he says, if it is not completely whole in the first place, it not be wholly acceptable 
to God in any certainty. So he goes on to say that in paragraph 66, if forgiveness of sins depends on our works, it is completely uncertain. The promise will be abolished. You cannot have an unsure promise because the uncertainty of it then takes away all of the power of the promise. We must have that certainty or we cannot find peace for our conscience. Melanchthon then brings us to 2 Timothy 2.15 as he's talking about having to divide the word of God into its two main parts, being law and gospel. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The first president of the Missouri Synod took this verse and did a 39 lecture series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. It is still a must-read for guys going through the seminary to become pastors because that is what our job is, is to stand up in the pulpit and then to be able to rightly divide the Word of God, to show ourselves approved as a worker who can properly and rightly handle God's Word. Otherwise, we have no business being up there. It also applies to the laity as well. Not that you have to be perfectly skilled in all of that division, but to be able to understand the distinction between what the law is telling you you must do and the gospel promise saying what God through Christ has done for you, that is a major distinction that every Christian needs to make, which is why I brought the title of Wrestling with Theology to this podcast, is because everyone wrestles with the theologies that are around us, whether they are the ones that we hear in the pulpit, the one we see in the newspaper or the media, or even the ones we see and hear out in our own society. We have to wrestle with these to understand what is true and what is not. What is part of the law and what is part of the gospel? Because too many people try to make things part of the gospel to make it a free ride that we don't have to worry about anything. But we also have to remember we are simultaneously saint and sinner. We can't get away from our sins. But we have a Savior who has come and has taken the guilt of those sins away so that we may come to our pastor in private confession and absolution. We may go to the divine service and hear and confess our sins there to be rid of them once again, once and for all, and ask for the strength to be able to carry on and not repeat ourselves again. We pick up in paragraph 68 where Melanchthon says, Good works are to be done because of God's command and for the exercise of faith, confessing the faith and giving thanks. Good works must be done for these reasons. They are done in the flesh, which is not as yet entirely renewed. The flesh hinders the Holy Spirit's motives and adds some of its uncleanness to the works. 
Yet because of Christ they are holy divine works, sacrifices and acts belonging to the rule of Christ, who in this way displays his kingdom before this world. For in these works he sanctifies hearts and represses the devil. In order to retain the gospel among people, he openly sets the confession of saints against the kingdom of the devil, and in our weakness declares his power. Good works are to be done because God has commanded them. God has commanded them not to give us a chance to merit salvation, but he has given them to us to be able to exercise and to confess our faith. And yes, these works are both wicked and good at the same time, because if they are done in Christ, they are holy and righteous. But our sinful nature still clings on to them, so they're not perfect. Therefore, we still cannot have that firm confidence in our works to be able to save ourselves. We must rely on the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ and his reconciliation of us with God. And so he does that all throughout history, even in the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages that the scholastics rise and bring all these things into the church that don't belong there and start bringing in all these teachings that are truly demonic in origin. God always sets his saints against the kingdom of the devil and in their weakness declares his power. We continue on in paragraph 69. Consider the dangers, labors, and sermons of the Apostle Paul, of Athanasius, Augustine, and the rest who taught the churches. These deeds are holy works and true sacrifices acceptable to God. They are Christ battles through which he repressed the devil and drove him away from those who believed. David's labors in waging wars and in his home government are holy works, true sacrifices and battles fought by God. They defend the people who had God's word against the devil in order that the knowledge of God might not be entirely extinguished on earth. We think this way also about every good work in the humblest callings and in private affairs. Though the, through these works, Christ celebrates his victory over the devil, just as in the distribution of alms by the Corinthians was a holy work, a sacrifice, and battle of Christ against the devil, who labors so that nothing may be done to praise God. All right, so we have these battles that Christ has with the devil through our works. And these can be the great works of Paul and Athanasius and Augustine, the sermons and the great teachers of the church. They can be David and the rulers of our countries doing what God wants them to do in their government, fulfilling their fourth commandment responsibilities. But they can also be you and I fulfilling our vocation as father or mother or brother or sister or son or daughter or friend or co-worker, employer, employee. All of these things, even in the everyday life, brings about God's power through Christ against the devil because they are to be done in the humility of faith. We go on into 72. To demean such works, the confession of doctrine, sufferings, works of love, suppression of the flesh, would be to demean the outward rule of Christ's kingdom among people. To demean these things as being unnecessary, as being not good, is not good. Because it's these things that show that 
Christ is working in this world, that there is good in this evil world. And it's not because we try and we do more good than evil. No, it's because Christ came and has given us the Holy Spirit to have faith in him so that we seek to praise him with everything that we do. Luther will go on to say in several of his works, even changing a baby's diaper is still a faithful and holy work of the Lord. Think about that. Uh, for those of you who have newborns and infants that are still in diapers, that that is a holy work to change that dirty diaper. Paragraph 73, Melanchthon says, Here also we add something about rewards and merits. We teach that rewards have been offered and promised for the works of believers. We teach that good works have merit, not for the forgiveness of sins, for grace, or for justification, for these we receive only through faith, but for other rewards, bodily and spiritual, in this life and after this life. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.8, Each will receive his wages according to his labor. We teach that rewards have been offered and promised for the works of believers, not awarded for the merit of salvation, not for the reconciliation of ourselves with God, but there are other bodily and spiritual blessings and rewards that we receive through the good works that God has commanded us. Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The works are bodily and spiritual for this life and the life after, because it is that day, that final day, where God burns everything and creates a new heavens and a new earth, that we see these rewards. And we do still have rewards. And Paul will go on in the Corinthians to talk about glories leading on to more glories and the more good works that are done, the greater the glory we have in the world to come. But each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Paragraph 74, there will be different rewards according to different labors. But forgiveness of sins is given alike and equal to all people, just as Christ is one and is offered freely to all who believe that for his sake their sins are forgiven. Therefore, forgiveness of sins and justification are received only through faith, not because of any works. This is clear because of the terrors of conscience, because none of our works can turn away God's wrath. As Paul clearly says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith. Because faith makes sons of gods, it also makes co-heirs with Christ.
Because by our works we do not merit justification through which we are made sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. We do not merit eternal life by our works. Faith receives it because faith justifies us and has a reconciled God. But eternal life is due to the justified, according to the passage in Romans 8.30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul tells us the commandment about honoring parents by mentioning the reward added to that commandment. He does not mean that obedience to parents justifies us before God, but when obedience happens in those who have been justified, it merits other great rewards. God puts his saints to work in various ways and often holds back the rewards of works righteousness. He does this so that they may learn not to trust in their own righteousness and may learn to seek God's will rather than the rewards. This could be seen with Job, Christ, and other saints. And many Psalms teach us about this. They console us against the happiness of the wicked, as Psalm 37.1 says, Be not envious. Christ says in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By these praises of good works, believers are undoubtedly moved to do good works. Meanwhile, the teaching of repentance is also proclaimed against the godless whose works are wicked. God's wrath, which he has threatened against all who do not repent, is displayed. Therefore, we praise and require good works and show many reasons why they ought to be done. Remember, this is the whole point that the adversaries and the Roman theologians had an issue with the Lutherans, is that by saying we are justified by faith alone, they think that we get rid of good works, that we deny and abolish good works. And Melanchthon says, no, over and over again, no, we do not abolish good works. We actually command them and do them better than the Roman theologians. He continues on. Paul also teaches this about works when he says in Romans 4, 9 through 25, that Abraham received circumcision. He did not seek to be justified by this work, for he had already attained justification through faith. He was counted righteous. But circumcision was added so that A, Abraham might have a written sign in his body, B, admonished by this, he might exercise faith, and C, by this work he might also confess his faith before others, and by his testimony, invite others to believe. So circumcision was not given to Abraham to justify him. He was already justified, but he was given as a sign for his faith. It was given as that physical sign of the covenant received in justifying faith. He could not understand what it was if he had not already been justified by faith. And so again, he continues on in paragraph 81. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice, Hebrews 11.4. Because he was just by faith, the sacrifice that he made was pleasing to God. It is not that he merited forgiveness of sins and grace by this work, but he exercised his faith and showed it to others in order to invite them to believe. We look back at Genesis chapter 4 and the story of Cain and Abel, and yes, Cain kills his brother because Abel's offering was accepted by God while Cain's was not. Why? Abel was offering in an exercise of his faith. And that is what good works are. They are exercises of our faith in Christ. The faith that has already justified us. The faith that has already made us sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is why we do good things. This is why we praise good works and admonish people to do them. 
because it is their sign of showing their faith in Christ, showing that they have been justified, they have been redeemed, they have been saved. And therefore, God may be praised through their works. We're going to stop here for this week. We'll pick back up again in paragraph 82 next week, continuing on with the objections and arguments against the adversaries' complaints and arguments in the confutation. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.